Happy New Year to you all. A brilliant young pianist was performing for the very first time in public and the audience in this large concert hall was sitting just enthralled as he began to play. Evidently well-trained, highly disciplined fingers just rolling out his incredible sounds in this solo performance. And uh, they could hardly take their eyes off him as he played the whole thing. As the final note faded, the audience just burst into applause. And then they stood up and they had a standing ovation, except for one person sitting on the front row. Just one older man. Everybody else was on their feet. And this young pianist, he walked off the stage kind of into the wings there, and he was just kind of looking down a bit, and the uh, stage manager said, you know, brilliant job, well done, and he's like, he wasn't good enough. He said, look, look out there, they're they're all standing, just one person seated, and he said, yes, but that one old man is my teacher. I suspect all of us can think of times when we have wanted to please a particular person, a parent, perhaps. If only I could just do well. If only I could please my father. He would approve of me. He would uh, affirm me. Or maybe one's boss. Maybe it's your partner if you have one. We live for their approval. Unless that person is pleased, we feel that we failed. Some of us can think of times we've lived to please everyone around us, just lived as a people pleaser. Basically, we can't bear anyone to be disappointed with us, so we strive to make everyone happy, only to find that that simply is not possible. And some of us, to our shame, can think of times we've lived to please ourselves. Forget everyone else. I want to do this and stuff what anybody else thinks. Whether our goal is to please a specific individual or to win the approval of those around us or whether we're selfishly looking just to please ourselves, the truth is it will lead us nowhere good. A few weeks ago I read all of the letters contained in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote to the various churches that he had planted and as I did so I was struck afresh by something which characterizes what Paul wanted for those churches and it captures what I want for us, Trent Vineyard. In his second letter to the Corinthian church, he told them the highest priority of his own life. This is Paul. The one single thing which took priority over everything else. His singular goal to which he devoted all of his effort. And writing about the Lord, he says this in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9. We make it our goal to please him. And this has been something of a life first for me over 20-something years. Some of you would have heard me preach on this verse before because that's, it's because it's such a vital truth. And today's sermon is new, actually. It begins with this verse, but it takes a very different direction to anything I've done before. That was Paul's stated life goal. And as he sought to emulate Jesus, he grasped that that actually was Jesus' life goal. God the Son became a human being 2,000 years ago. He lived a life which demonstrated to us how a life is supposed to be lived. He died a death so that we wouldn't have to taste death, but could have an eternal relationship with God. And like Paul, it's interesting to see what Jesus said about his own goal. And as we're thinking this time of year, the first Sunday in 2015 about New Year's resolutions. I don't know whether you do that or not, but thinking about the coming year, what sort of goal would you set for yourself? Well, this is Jesus explaining his. John 5, verse 30. 
I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. In John 8, 29, this is what Jesus said, I always do what pleases him. Now, none of us can honestly say that. I always do what pleases him. Evidently, God the Father agreed with that statement as both at his baptism and at his transfiguration, he says the same thing, recorded in the same words. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Matthew 3, 17, this is what God the Father said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Right near the end of his ministry, Matthew 17, verse 5, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And so in his letter to the Ephesian church, Paul exhorted the Christians in Ephesus, in Ephesians 5 verse 10, find out what pleases the Lord and then devote yourself to doing just that. In his letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 1, he says this, Brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living, you are already doing that. But Paul isn't content to leave that church just there, just kind of getting along, you know, just well done, you can rest on your laurels now. He says, no, in view of the fact that you are actually living to please God, now we ask you and urge you to do this more. And more. There's enough ongoing emphasis in that sentence to be very clear that Paul wants them to continue and to invest deeper and to please the Lord more every year that they exist. And these words are true for many of you. You are living to please God. And really, what I'm doing today, this first Sunday in 2015, as we begin this new year, is echoing what Paul says. Now we ask you and urge you live a life which pleases God, and to do that more and more. To actually live a bit like that young pianist, but to have in our focus, not our piano teacher, but to have in focus the one person who it really matters. It doesn't matter whether we please anybody around us as long as we're pleasing God. It doesn't actually matter whether we please ourselves as long as we're pleasing God. You know, fulfillment and happiness is never found actually in pursuing our fulfillment and happiness. It's only found in one place in pleasing God. Now I want to look with you today at a little passage that we find in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossian church. And it gives us a few practical ways which we might focus on as we seek to make this our life's goal this year. Our life's goal and this year as a starter. So this is Colossians chapter 1 and we're beginning at verse 1. The letter is from Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all his people. Moving to verse 9. Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit 
in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. Now in there, Paul lists four ways in which we might practically go about pleasing God. So in verse 10 it says this, Live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Colon, which means what is about to follow springs from that as an unpacking of it. Please him in every way. Bearing fruit in every good work. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he tells them in chapter 2, verse 10, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And of course, Jesus himself talks a lot about us being fruitful, especially in John chapter 15, a wonderful chapter. Verse 8 says this, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. If you want to know what a disciple of Jesus Christ looks like, it is someone who is doing the good works prepared in advance for them to do and who is bearing fruit in so doing. Not doing those good works to somehow earn salvation. We can't add a thing to what God has already done for us. But as the fruit of that salvation, we put ourselves into the service of God. Verse 16 of that chapter says this, I chose you and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And he says in that chapter, the way to do that is not through striving, but to simply stick really close to Jesus. He said in verse 5 of John 15, I am the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And so living a life which pleases God includes getting on with what Paul calls the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do and doing them with the energy which Jesus provides. As we begin this year, some of you may be aware that there may be some good works which God has prepared in advance for you to do, and you're not doing them. might be an opportunity to think as you review your life, perhaps there's some things I should be doing. It may be among those that there's an area of service in the life of the church here, and you might think, you know, I've been meaning to for a while, There's the connect area. That's where you sign up to get involved in service. It could be in any other arena of life. Some good works that God has called you to, but you're not yet doing. Others of you, conversely, may be just doing too much. Some of you will have heard me talk about ministry, talk about the pressures which everyone, especially leaders, can sometimes experience. Not one of us can do every good thing we want to do or which others might expect or want us to do. And when Paul says here that we should bear fruit in every good work, what he has in mind is that expanded phrase we looked at in Ephesians 2. His meaning, every good work which God has prepared for us to do. And as you know, one of the greatest secrets of time management and walking in his anointing and our burden being manageable is this. It's very simple. Identify those works which God has prepared for you to do and do them. And make sure you're not doing any of the good works he's prepared for someone else to do. If you only remember one thing, that's really worth taking home. Do the things God's called you to and let someone else do the things God has called them to. If you are working too hard, if you're at risk of getting burnt out, if your pace of life is unsustainable, 
This new year is a good time to consider taking a fresh look at what you're doing. Is there anything that you're taking responsibility for which could be done by somebody else? If so, maybe if you can, it's possible, maybe it's time to delegate that thing. Or simply to pluck up the courage to say no to the person who's expecting you to do it. A fruitful life doesn't come from working yourself to the bone. It comes from abiding in the Lord, finding rest, our rest and sustenance in our relationship with him, and doing what he's made us to do. Now I'm talking about this and expanding it because I've, I have begun to learn this principle, but I've been learning it for decades now and generally the hard way. There's a thing called Strengths Finder, one of the personality profile things which I found very helpful, and one of my key strengths is responsibility. And my tendency over the years has been perhaps to take responsibility for things I'm not responsible for and to take on more than I should have or to allow circumstances to force me into a stressful season and then to try and do the things I've got on my plate to a higher standard than I actually needed to. And as a result, there have been times when I've just overdone it. In trying to be responsible, I've actually acted irresponsibly. And that doesn't please God. You know, he's not a taskmaster driving us like slaves. So often we put that stuff on ourselves or we allow other people in our people-pleasing efforts to put that stuff upon us. He wants us to thrive as we focus on pleasing him by being fruitful in all that he's called us to do. Now, I was given a book at Christmas and uh, I have read a hundred and something pages of it and I highly recommend it. We're going to have it on the bookstore probably from next week. This book by Bill Hybels, it's called Simplify. And in it, he encourages his readers to take control of their diary, take control of their to-do list, and to refocus on God's priorities, which lead to a life as he intends. Let me just read you a little bit from the back cover here, because this is going to resonate with some of you. Overscheduled, exhausted, overwhelmed, Sound familiar? Too familiar? You're living at a velocity you know deep down is unsustainable. Your life is off course, too crammed with busyness, too out of focus. You keep waiting for things to get better, but they never do. In Simplify, best-selling author Bill Hybels identifies core issues that drive this kind of living and offers action steps to help you live a better way. By eradicating clutter from your inner world, you can experience immediate rewards, greater energy, clearer purpose, richer relationships, and more. So whether you get it here or get it on a popular website named after a jungle, uh, (laughs) I would encourage you to read it if that's describing you. Now, in talking about this, I'm not wanting to be oversimplistic. There are times when life can simply be a bit overwhelming. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're saying yes to too many things or we're not delegating effectively. Sometimes life is just really stinking hard. And that may be the situation that you're in right now. As I recently read Paul's letter to the Philippians, I noticed this. He says in chapter 4, Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation... Present your requests to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. Pretty good counsel. And yet in chapter 2, he talks about sending his fellow worker, Epaphroditus, who had been so ill that he'd almost died, sending him back to them. And one of the reasons Paul gives for doing so is that I might have less anxiety. 
So it would seem even though Paul knew the answer to becoming peaceful and anxiety-free, he also lived in the reality that it's not a simple thing to achieve. In the first chapter of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he talks about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. That's a pretty rough season. Some of you have experienced something close, but that is really incredibly rough. And uh, he quickly puts it into perspective for us by saying that God delivered them from that situation. But it's clear that even for the Apostle Paul, who lived right in the center of God's will, doing the works that God had prepared for him to do, it was not plain sailing and, and readily sorted out with a little bit of time management and delegation. You may be currently experiencing great strain You may have too much on your plate, circumstances crowding in on you, stress beyond what you can healthily sustain. And while that's not somewhere the Lord wants you to stay long term, just realize it may be one of those hard seasons. And I would encourage you to do what you can to relieve your load. Be kind to yourself in what you say yes to. And trust that the Lord will bring you through as you cast your anxieties on him. So that's the first thing bearing fruit in every good work. Secondly here, live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, growing in the knowledge of God. There are a couple of key ways to do that. Both of them are valid. Growing in what we know about God and growing in knowing him personally. So let's take the first one. It pleases God when we learn about him. One of the best ways you can do that is by reading this book. Uh, It's a library, actually, of 66 books. But it tells us who God is. It tells us about his character, his trustworthiness, his holiness. Tells us about his love. Tells us what he's passionate about. How he interacts with people and lets us into some of the mystery of how God works. And the better we know the contents of this book, the biggest selling book in the world throughout history, the more knowledge of God that we will have. For years, I've made it a habit to read through the Bible every year or sometimes every year and a half, a year, two years. And um, not surprisingly, I've found that I know more about God than I used to. I'm always discovering fresh insights into what he's like. And at different times, particular things have stood out to me. And the knowledge of God, knowing about him, feeds the other kind of knowledge of God, knowing him personally. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus is recorded as saying, To God the Father, now this is eternal life. In the message translation of this verse, it says, This is real and eternal life. This is the real deal. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing God, knowing Jesus, is life at its best, at its most real. And that experience will deepen into eternity. Along with reading the Bible, our relationship with God grows as we spend time with other believers, being here 52 times a year or as many times as you can. uh, You'll find that you grow in your relationship with God. You see him in the person sitting next to you. We find it also as we spend time, of course, with him. And as we begin 2015, let me encourage those of you who are spending time reading your Bible, are spending time in prayer, to do so more this year than you have last year. And those of you who don't presently have a habit 
of spending time engaging with the Bible and the Lord, this is a great day to decide to start building that into your life. Start building the habit. It may not even be every day. I'd encourage you to take like an app like um, The Bible in One Year that Nikki Gumbel wrote. I did that for a year or two. And um, I found it really helpful. And even if you don't manage to sustain it, maybe you dip into it once every three days. Just do that day's study. And you'll find over time that you will get to know God better. A week ago was, our, was an anniversary for Debbie and myself. It was our 36-year anniversary of the first date that Debbie and I went on. On the 27th of December 1978, we went to see a film starring Clint Eastwood and a large orangutan by the name of Clyde called Every Which Way But Loose. Some of you may have seen that if you're as old as we are. And then we courted for four and a half years, and then we got married. And in order to get to know Debbie, I could have read a book about her. And that would have given me plenty of insights, but it just wouldn't have been enough. I was amused by this picture of volume one of the ultra-condensed version of a book on how to understand women. Is that unfair? If you're a woman, please don't be insulted by that. Be complimented that you are the pinnacle of God's wondrously complex and marvelous creation. Now, it wouldn't have been enough to read a book about Debbie to know all there was in writing about her. I don't just know her. I know her really well. I have 36 years of relationship with her, of trust, of understanding, of loving her. I've spent time talking to her. I've spent an awful lot more time listening to her. <laughs> I've watched how she interacts with others. I'm still learning new things about her. You know, over the years, you know, responsibilities fall, this, you know, who puts the bins out? That was one that took me a few years to realize it was me. <laughs> uh, I realized it, and I've done it for decades since, but I just, as in sort of a few weeks before Christmas, about two weeks before, I, I started, I, you know, we, I make the bed on the day off probably because I get up second. And on the days that I get up after Debbie, I probably would make the bed. But most days, uh, I get up first. And so Debbie just naturally, part of her getting up routine is just get up, make the bed, and so on. And I must have started doing it just a little bit more. And uh, she noticed, and she said, that really blesses me when you make the bed. And I thought, you know, 36 years of which, admittedly, only 32, we've been sharing a bed. But nevertheless, for 32 years, I hadn't really noticed just how much it has blessed her when I've done it. And so now I'm doing it more because I know, you know, I want to please her. If you and I want to please God by growing in our knowledge of him, both learning about him and knowing him personally, time must be invested in our relationship with him and also just with an idea uh, a focus of, how do I please you? How can I please you more? So live a life worthy of the Lord, please him in every way. Thirdly, growing in endurance and patience. Paul knew better than anybody that the Christian life, a follower of Jesus, their life is challenging. And the Christians he's writing to here in Colossae, they didn't apparently face some of the persecution that other churches that Paul has planted did, but they were dealing with false teachers who were confusing new believers by trying to mix in stuff from pagan cults with the gospel. And this is one of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter. Paul's exhorting them to grow in their endurance as they hold fast to the gospel. And 
he writes this, verse 9, he said, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience. Paul's prayer for them is that they'll be able to live lives which please God, again, not in their own strength, but with the strength which God gives, that they and we will be able to patiently endure, endure for the long haul, empowered by him. N.T. Wright, in his commentary, writes this, there's a slight distinction to be drawn between endurance and patience. The former is what faith, hope, and love bring to an apparently impossible situation. The latter, patience, what they show to an apparently impossible person. Don't know whether that's helpful, but an impossible situation requires uh, endurance and an impossible person requires patience. I remember well the day that Debbie and I discovered we, we were pregnant, as it were, for the second time uh, with our second child, Jordan, who's now 23. And uh, I went to work that day and I thought, I need to buy some flowers. So there was a shop just down, a few doors down from my study, my office there in London. And so I, I popped in there and they had a three-foot doorway and it was a two-leaf door, two doors, but one was always locked. So invariably one went, reached for the wrong one, shook it a bit and then realized the other one and then you had to kind of squeeze through, even with my slight frame, I was still having to go sideways to get into this shop. And... Um, this shop was run by two brothers in their 60s, two bachelors. And so I said, I'd like to buy some flowers. It was spring. I see you got some daffodils. I'll just take the lot. Give me the whole bucket of daffodils. So they had to, he had to count. Oh, no, he didn't. Uh, I forget. Uh, he said, um, my brother does the flowers. He's out. He comes back about one. So uh, I thought, so you can't sell me? No, no, my brother does the flowers. So, okay, I went back to my office. At one o'clock, I was back. The other brother's there, fantastic. And as I recall it, the flowers, let's say, as I did the maths yesterday, were, say, 51p a bunch. And so I said, I'll just take the lot. There were about 20 bunches in this bucket, and that would come, of course, to £10.20. So, uh, and I said, can I also have a, a roll and some sliced meat from this lovely counter they had there? He said, uh, my brother does the food. <laughs> He's gone out. He'll be back about two. So I said, okay, I'll have to pop back. So I had in my pocket, as I recall, two tenors. No coins at all. Now he could, I suppose, have rounded it down to 10 pounds uh, as I had bought his entire stock. I mean, I was paying for 19 and three-quarter bunches as it was at 10 pounds, but no, uh, he had to go to the till. Now, the till, he didn't actually have a till. These guys have been obviously in business since the 1920s, and they had one of those old wooden drawers, oak drawers, with the little compartments. So he went to that, put my tenor in. There weren't enough coins and stuff to give me change. So he then had to go to the safe, Whereupon he opened the safe, an old-fashioned thing, and then he pulled out these rolls of coins in paper and proceeded breaking them open at multi-denominations and putting them in the relevant actual drawer space before he then was able to give me my £9.80 in coins uh, before I could then leave. So um, I took off. 2 p.m. I was back to buy my roll and my meat for a late lunch because they didn't serve lunch stuff at lunchtime. Patience patience I'm talking about here. It's a good, t a good thing that I'm an internal processor.
because I was able, though only just able, to give the appearance of being a patient person. Now, if either of the shopkeepers had actually heard the internal commentary of furious and insulting thoughts which was going through my mind and ready, nearly ready to come out, they would have thrown me out of the narrow doorway and banned me from ever darkening their door again. Now, that's a rather trivial illustration, and you can probably think of many in your own life where you've had to be patient with a person, or in this case, persons. Um, and some of you are facing things even right now where patience, of course, is requiring far more of you. It pleases God when we demonstrate patience and endurance in the face of things which make us impatient and which are almost unendurable as he empowers us to do so. And then the last thing that Paul mentions here, we find in verse 12, he says, Live a life worthy of the Lord, please him in every way, giving joyful thanks to the Father. There are so many references to giving joyful thanks to the Father, giving thanks to God throughout the Scriptures. Let me just mention one that Paul uses in his letter to the Ephesian church, a passage I referred to recently. Ephesians 5.19. Be filled with the Spirit, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. So it's without exception, always and for everything. Living with an attitude of gratitude pleases God. And it's actually been identified by social scientists as one of the keys to sustaining a high quality of life. According to Sonia Lyubomirsky, professor of psychology at the University of California, she said this, the value of gratitude has been recognized for centuries. But researchers have only begun to investigate gratitude within the last few decades. In a short time, considerable evidence has accumulated that gratitude is associated with superior mental health outcomes, both the absence of mental illness and the presence of psychological well-being. Someone who's popularized this concept is Oprah Winfrey, who says that gratitude increases the joy of living. And she says to people who struggle to be grateful, struggle with gratitude, struggle to count their blessings one by one, she says this, when you don't think you have anything to be grateful for, Start with your breath and start being grateful for that. I'm grateful for my breath. I'm grateful that I was able to get up and walk on both legs this morning. I'm grateful that I'm able to use my hands. Now, of course, Paul is not just talking about a general attitude of gratitude, but recognizing the source of every good thing in our lives. It all comes from God the Father. James 1.17 tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from above coming down from the Father. And so as we count our blessings one by one, we see what the Lord has done. And so as followers of Jesus, recognizing that everything we have, including our next breath, and the use of our limbs, if we have that use, is from him, we should be the most grateful people in the world. It pleases God when we give him thanks for all that he has given us. And so as the Apostle Paul prayed for the members of the Colossian church, that's my prayer for you and for us, for myself, as we begin this year. I pray for you as I pray for myself that we would, in this coming year, more than in 2014, we would live a life, if we could have the slide up, worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Do we have that? The final one. Bearing fruit in every good work. Growing in the knowledge of God, 
growing in endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Father. As you consider that, I'm just going to ask you to take a couple of minutes to consider what the Lord might be actually speaking to you about tonight, out of this. What's the so what that comes out of this uh, message? Bearing fruit in every good work. Some of you are not doing those good works you know that God has prepared for you. Some of you are doing too much. Other things you need to change. Growing in the knowledge of God, particularly in reading the Bible, particularly in actually interacting, talking to God and listening to Him. What about that habit of a devotional life? What about growing in endurance and patience in His strength and daily thanking the Lord and considering, maybe you've had a really tough 2014, but think of the blessings that God has showered into your life. 